We're in a radio station in LA and Roisin's on my lap and we're performing live and I'm feeding her a mandarin so that she's contented and eating and satisfied and I'm singing and I'm like, how did I pull it off? This is Centerpiece NY with Paul Finnegan, your presenter and producer. Centerpiece NY is a podcast that traces the lives of people who have put down some serious roots in the Irish community in New York. Our centerpiece for this episode is singer, songwriter, Dublin native and good troublemaker Susan McKeown. Susan McKeown, more than most people I know, meets the definition of a warrior. She's fought many battles, overcoming many odds. The early loss of a beloved parent, raising a child alone under extraordinary circumstances, adapting to mental ill health in those close to her, witnessing great disruption in the music industry, her Shli Baha, which is Gaelic, Irish, for her way of life. And she is still on the offensive, fighting for the things she believes in and cares about. And like a true warrior, she fights with joy. The secret to her resilience? Creating music and creating a better world. It's worth noting that Susan is our first guest with her very own Wikipedia page, and such is the calibre of those she's worked with in music that many of them have one also. If you'd like to learn more, check out our show notes for links to those mentioned in this episode. But first, let's go back to Susan's beginnings in Dublin. Yeah, I grew up in Dublin, in the suburbs, and I, you know, think very fondly back on my childhood. We lived in Tir Anur, the land of the yew tree, which is the suburb of Terranure, four miles from the GPO, in um, a red brick house that was bought by my grandfather in 1935 when my father was five. My four siblings were born more or less, there was a few Irish twins in there. They were all born like within five years. Irish twins is a humorous label for siblings born within a year of each other. No prizes for guessing correctly as to how and why this name came about. And then there was a gap of four years, which made it very convenient for me coming along to be the baby. So I kind of had my mother all to myself. They were all in school by the time I was born. And I remember a lot of time with my mother at home or traveling around with her because she was a professional musician in the 70s at a time when a lot of Irish mothers, because they didn't have a choice, worked only in the home. Whereas she already had a professional music career when she'd met my father and she didn't want to give it up. And she had such a career that she didn't have to give it up. So she took me around with her to weddings and funerals and benediction and all the various ceremonies in the church at the time. That was very magical for me to see the ritual and smell the frankincense and just have that time alone with my mother. I was very fortunate. Her name was Jenny, 
the way she spelt it, a lot of people would look at it and say Jeannie, but everybody pronounced it Jenny. So it was J-E-A-N-N-I-E, and she was christened Jane Anne McKeown. My mother spoke Irish to me, not exclusively, but I have fond memories of standing by the oven with her with her cooking, and she'd be wearing this house coat, making dinner, speaking to me in Irish, and then after dinner, the house coat would come off and she'd be dressed beautifully. She'd do her nails and go off to play at the Green Isle or some hotel. So I grew up with this incredible woman as a mother who was very glamorous, very spiritual, very loving and very confident in her own career. I got a lot of good stuff. She died on the 11th of August 1982. You were quite young. I was. I mean, I was 15, but I'm glad I wasn't six. She got cancer. And I didn't know she was dying until some days before she died. It started to come on when I was about 10. And my father also had surgery at that time because they noticed uh, the beginning of um, throat cancer, which is what his father had died from because it was misdiagnosed. So my father had surgery that same year and he was fine. My mother recovered and you know, as I understand it, it was if you went another five years without its recurrence, you'd be fine. And it came back uh, about four years later. Hope is a dress that my mother once wore A fiddle tune I heard It has no She was a, a very different kind of a woman. For that time, she was a, a trailblazer and set a high standard. So I was very lucky. I got so much from her, even though my memory isn't really strong of like particular events necessarily, but uh, things happen all the time that remind me of my mother and things that I was gifted from her. I'm so grateful for that and how it has made me the woman that I am. When I was whatever age that was, 10, it started a trajectory in our family, obviously, that drew to a close when she died. I had this feeling there was something I wasn't supposed to talk about, but I didn't know what that was. So coming out of that, I saw that the music 
that I got into that became my life. I started to get into that like a lot of people at, you know, 10, 11, 12, up to 14, when a lot of people were getting into the Beatles or whatever your rock music was or Stevie Wonder. And I started really honing in on unaccompanied Irish women singing. That became my my big thing. And it was really, I suppose, ushered through the group Clannad. I became their biggest fan. That music really comforted me through all that time, and I didn't know what was coming. And then when it happened, it just opened me more into music, and I really got more involved in the traditional music scene and really started to become a singer, and it helped me in expressing very complex emotions that I was not allowed to express in my own family after my mother died. That was common. There were no bereavement classes. Nobody knew that you needed to process. (laughs) We didn't have that language. So it was very uh, complicated, uh, difficult time for me because I had lost the one human being who understood me more than anyone else with who I had this communication that I didn't have to articulate most of the time. She just understood. So how wonderful it was that I had discovered this music. Going to Cumber Markets to learn to sell for her mummy three hanks of fine yarn. She met with a young man along the highway, and that was to cause her dally and stray. Sit down beside me, I mean you no harm. Sit down beside me, this new tune to learn. Here are three guineas, your mummy to pay. So lay by your yarn. You know, there's a line that I heard Bernadette Devlin say one of the times she was here in the 90s talking in in Midtown. Bernadette Devlin McAliskey is a powerful civil rights activist from Northern Ireland who at the age of 21 was the youngest woman ever elected to the British Parliament and in 1981 was badly wounded in a loyalist assassination attempt and narrowly survived. One simple message I have for you is keep up the struggle, no matter what comes. Keep up the resistance, keep up the determination, because never in Ireland's history, in the history of the world, has the might of any army ever beaten the determination of a risen people. I said it to her during a Zoom thing we were on for International Women's Day just past. The people said to her in the late 1960s in the North that when she started to speak, they heard old ghosts coming down from the past. And I connect that line to the way I came to music because it was through losing my mother's voice, but it really connected me with ancestral voices of women in Ireland. And that whole theme, I just sat into it. And it's really been a frame that's really supported me, a framework to do with who I am and what I am, because I am a singer and singers are different. Susan got plenty of the musical genes through her father's side, too. My grandfather was the son of Angela Clark Ryan. So again, my father was Ryan. His father was Ryan from Galway. That's where we get to Galway, Paul. It's about time. And, uh, <laughs> this is not about Galway. I know. But you have to throw it in. And uh, Molya in Galway is where they're from. And Angela Clark from Dublin 7 married into that family. And her husband died in Molya in an accident that is well documented. And she was left destitute and lost Molya House that the Ryans had lived in for generations. So she came up to Dublin 
put her sons in different schools because of their ages. And she went to Portugal and France, was a published songwriter and composer there. And then in 1916, she publishes Hoist the Flag, the only known song written about the 1916 Rising by a woman that has an image of the GPO on the cover. And my father never spoke about that. Susan's father, Jack, worked mainly as a food scientist in the chocolate and sweet manufacturing business around Dublin. Susan was known as the confectioner's daughter. And he always spoke about the North with disdain and had attitudes about it that I recognised in the government. So he was accepting the authority, the institutional line on all of this. Uh, Whereas my mother would have been very much instinctual and going with her gut. Not that my father didn't. I loved my father. But my mother handed me the language. My mother knew the power of culture and how complex it is. Some reflections now on Susan's mother's lineage. And here, as often was the case, Ireland's two traditions, Catholic and Republican, Protestant and Unionist, didn't always follow the standard narrative. The McKeowns were Protestant. They were from Lurgan, they went through Belfast, and they arrived down in Dublin in the 1890s. My great-grandfather, Mary Jane Thorpe, her father was an English Protestant, but her mother might have been a traveller. They were Rileys from Navan, so very Irish anyway. So uh, he married a Catholic. Susan's mother lived at a time when people born with a keen sense of racial justice lacked the tools to act, were trapped in an unwoke world. For a time, her husband secured employment in warmer climes among people of colour. And then he got offered this job in Barbados, which I'm sure he would never have imagined. When they went to Barbados, they had servants who were black, and my mother was very uncomfortable with that. You know, I'm sure my father um, accepted it because he would have had a different approach to it. But I know it made my mother extremely uncomfortable. We know that because she said that to some of my siblings. That's how I know it, because when they came back to Ireland, uh, my eldest brother had already been born. And of course, the rest of our uh, lament as we got born was, why did you leave Barbados? (laughs) So your eldest brother was born in Barbados. He's a Bajan. My eldest brother, Sean, is in Sydney. And he left the month before I left in 1990. And my second brother, David, Never left Ireland, except for holidays and business. He didn't live abroad. And then my third sibling, Stephen, lives in Texas. He was the first to leave. And then my sister, Jen, is in Wexford. She did live abroad, travelled a good bit with her husband early on. And then after they had kids, did live in France for a number of years. And they live in a thatched cottage in Wexford. And there were like four of us living abroad at one point. And I've often looked at that in terms of patterns. And so in terms of emigration, I looked at it and thought, God, it's really an Irish story. Later, with her career in America in high gear, and in keeping with the many serendipities bestowed on a people given to wandering from their native shore, Susan came across Caroline Daly from Nyack, New York, whom she'd friended face-to-face years before when Caroline and her parents would show up in Ireland on Susan Street visiting cousins as the Irish diaspora tends to do. Caroline, also a singer, passed on a little gem to Susan that her parents had hung on to from the days Susan lived in the red brick house at the end of the road in the land of the yew tree. Her parents had a cassette of me singing in Irish when I was nine 
and they still had it. So how lucky for me, how fortunate. I put it on an album that I made with Kathy Ryan and the pianist Robin Spielberg called Mother, Songs for Mothers. So I put on that song and it segues into Kathy and I singing it back when we recorded it around whatever year it was, 98 or something. And it's lovely to have, to hear my nine-year-old self singing in Irish. Sure enough, Jenny saw the talent in her youngest child. When I was 9, 10, 11, I studied singing privately because she sent me to lessons. She knew there was something there. And then when she was dying, she knew she was dying. She brought me to Veronica Dunn at the College of Music. And Veronica, I mean, she's well known for being the opera coach who would train all of the great opera singers who came out of Ireland at that time. So after Mam died, I got a letter from the college and she'd accepted me as a student. So I studied with her for a year. And that, as you can imagine, was a tumultuous year. And at the end of it, I decided I didn't want to become an opera singer. I knew I wanted to be a singer, but I was really more drawn to the songs of the people. Over the next few years, I finished secondary in Ireland and... There were lots of opportunities to sing around Dublin at that time. I was busking from the age of 15 and I did some touring in Europe. And it was mostly with traditional, sometimes jazz trios. And then I went to college. I went to UCD, studied English and philosophy. The day I graduated was the day I saw the poster for the American Musical and Dramatic Academy. And it took me two years to save the money in order to come through emigration with enough money and go to college. So I'd already done a lot of touring. I'd been on the Late Late and stuff before I left Ireland. The Late Late show in Ireland is huge. No more needs to be said. Ladies and gentlemen, to whom it concerns, it's the Late Late show. And here is your host, Gay Byrne. And when I arrived here, I was in school for that year, but I really also saw it as my ticket out of Ireland. It was a bit limiting even in Ireland as a woman trying to make it in the music business. 
So when I came here, I was able to start afresh. Chenet, the cafe, luckily, had just opened for me. <laughs> I'd opened in January of that year, so I arrived in October 1990, and I made my way down there. It is difficult to overstate the impact of Shane Doyle's Chenet Cafe in Manhattan's Lower East Side on the vibrant and innovative New York Irish music scene of the early 90s. The list of famous names, including Susan's, that performed there is astonishing. We've put a link in the show notes so you can read more about this remarkable place and time, but don't try to Google it yourself unless you know your Irish language spelling. And I had a boyfriend in Ireland at the time who was a musician, and he followed me over that January, and we started playing music and very quickly got to know the traditional music scene. So we were very successful with that. Uh, for a few years until we split up as a couple and then we stopped playing together. But then I became a songwriter. I mean, I'd already started writing songs, but that gave me the opportunity to really go into it more seriously. And I knew Jeff Buckley at Chenet and a lot of other great songwriters who started out there and did not become so famous as he. I see my light come shining But it was such a great place for us. And then in the late 90s, I made my first album. On the bridge to Williamsburg We were walking in the sun The river rippled wide below We stood to watch the water flow Stood to watch the water flow Underneath the Brooklyn sky Hand in hand, just you and I The ferry racing on the tide The broken sugar factory sign The broken sugar factory sign Always on the lookout for stronger models by which to live her life, Susan explains her child naming conventions. I first came in 86 as a student, to be clear, but then I moved in 90 because I'd won a scholarship to a performing arts school. So it was kind of a big deal. And I knew that I had an opportunity then to at least use a stage name. So at that point, I changed to Susan McKeown and started using it as my stage name. Because I was making such a big change, I'd be building a new community. And then I found a book in the Strand bookstore called Naming Ourselves, Naming Our Children. And it was written by a woman who had made um, a plan with her husband that if they had girls, they'd give them her last name. And if they had boys, they'd give them his last name. So I said, I like that idea. So if I ever uh, get married, that's what I would suggest to my husband. So when I did get married, I said to my husband, by the way, I have this idea and I'd like to know what you think of it. And I told him that idea and he said, that sounds great to me. So as luck would have it, I had a daughter. (laughs) So uh, she has her mother's mother's last name. I had my daughter in 2002 
And I was married to her dad, but that marriage ended and he left when she was 10 months old. That was quite a challenge to suddenly realize I was a single mom on the road. It was one of the happiest times of my life. And that's when I won the Grammy. Like it was a great challenging time, but all this incredible stuff happened because I just had to get up my game more and be more organized and call ahead and arrange things. I was on the road with Johnny Cunningham and Aidan Brennan for a few years. Johnny was such an incredible person. And we were on the road when my daughter was one year old. And then Johnny died at the end of that tour. But it was such a gift again that the universe was giving me this man to tour with. And I have a photo of him holding Roisin. And then four days after he died, uh, this had been planned for months, I was on the stage at 92nd Street Y with Arlo Guthrie and the Klezmatics singing... I'm going to get through this world. It was a song that I could really closely identify with. And the lyrics were by Woody Guthrie. And the music was by Lisa Gutkin. And as I understand it, she wanted me to sing this song. So that's why they invited me onto this incredible project, singing lyrics that Woody Guthrie left behind without music or the music had been lost. And the gift of being invited into that. So having lost Johnny... The next winters, for a few years, were taken up with the Klezmatics. And there was a documentary made out of that. And then when I saw the trailer, I'd forgotten. We're in a radio station in L.A. and Roisin's on my lap. And we're performing live. And I'm feeding her a mandarin so that she's contented and eating and satisfied. And I'm singing. <laughs> I'm like, how did I pull it off? Well, I'm gonna get through this world the best I can if I can and I'm gonna get through this world and I think I can well I'm gonna work in this world the best I can if I can and I Yeah, it was tough. It was very tough. But I got so many gifts at the time. It was not hard to keep hopeful and, and keep seeing something great was coming and things were being sent my way. But there were moments of doubt. Once, when walking from her father's grave, she confided in her sister. I said, I don't know how I can do this. She said, you are doing it. And then I just remembered that. Yeah, I, I'm doing it. I'm doing it. And now Susan is closer to the reward end of the parenting pipeline. She turned 18. She graduated early from high school. She's a singer-songwriter. I've learned so much from her. She had um, an upbringing very different from mine. Look, family can be many things. But in between, Susan pulled out all the stops to excel at motherhood, as she saw it. I took it on because I really wanted to be the best parent I could be. I got a lot of help. I really went seeking help. I met another single mom when she was in preschool who'd gone to this special therapist who just works with single parents. And she gave me some advice, which I carried with me so that I could allow her to be objective from an early age and make up her own mind about things. 
And a message now from our friends at the Celtic Irish American Academy in Galway City. Celtic Irish American Academy is a two-week summer program that takes place in Salt Hill, Galway each July. High school students from a variety of states have attended our last four programs. It helps them to gain a deep appreciation of their Irish culture and heritage and also to become more globally aware young citizens. Students stay with host families in the seaside village, attend classes in St. Edith's College and enjoy a variety of traditional activities and excursions. My name is Brian Fagg, Director of the Academy. If you are interested in your children or grandchildren attending, please contact us through our website. And that website is CelticIrishAmericanAcademy.com. And back again now to Susan. She's gone to 46 states. And luckily for me, she loved to travel because things would have been different had she not. But there was such a gift about, you know, after the show, going back to the hotel, having a bath. We'd go back early and we'd get up early and do things. And when we were in Europe, the band might go out partying. We'd go back to the hotel. But then we could get up and go to the Christmas market in Germany, look for the carousel. So... On the one hand, it might seem that things were tough because there was this thing was not there. That's kind of, quote, normal. And yet our normal was quite incredible. We did go back to Ireland and based ourselves there for a number of years. Um, And I went back to business school. And now, even though that had a lot of challenges for her, that's been part of our conversation about the back and forth. And we wouldn't have it any other way because we're able to see so much And now she really knows what it means to be Irish. Ich will euch geben zu der Klären, was von zwei kann als wären. Zwei Sehnen, die Kussen kalle, wo sie stehen, neben alle. Eins ist beim Kussenstisch, wo man isst und wo man trinkt, wo man huliert und man singt. And throughout those years, her career evolved. How did she find herself with an eclectic bunch of traditional Jewish musicians? Well, I knew some of the band because they're, you know, partially based on the Lower East Side and in Brooklyn, and they play, you know, Jewish music. It's klezmer. It's a Yiddish word meaning musician. So they're one of the world's leading klezmer bands. And two of them play Irish music as well. So that would be Lisa Gutkin, who wrote the music to I'm Gonna Get Through This World, and Matt Dario, who's not Jewish. So he also played a lot of Irish music. So also I was a fan of Lawrence Glamberg, who's their singer, and he was a fan of mine, and we just never met, but we loved each other's singing. And we went on to record other music together. We made an album called Saints and Tzaddiks, because Tzaddik is the Yiddish word for a wise person. So saints and tzaddiks, and that's T-Z or T-Z-A-D-D-I-C-K, is an album we did with Harmonium Mundi's imprint, World Village, and it was Yiddish and Irish songs. And Susan's biggest accomplishment in the music industry, to date that is, a Grammy for a 2006 album with the Klezmatics. We didn't end up recording the album until... 
2006. And so in 2007 at the Grammys, we won the Grammy for Best Contemporary World Music Album. And then that opened up more opportunities. So that pretty much had us touring a lot throughout Europe and the States. So we performed then at Carnegie Hall and Disney Hall in LA and a lot of places in between. Just beautiful work. Yeah, the Grammy, we actually were, I think we had done a festival. Yeah, we'd done a Celtic festival in Scotland that January, right before the Grammys happened, which brought us to Dublin. So we did a concert in Dublin in a like a folk club. And we were on Pat Kenny's radio show, which was on RTE radio at the time. Broadcast by RTE, which is the Irish National TV and Radio Service, the morning Pat Kenny radio show was big. Maybe not quite TV's late, late show big, but definitely big. And it pre-announced that we were up for a Grammy. And then the band came back to New York and they flew to L.A. and I stayed in Ireland because I didn't think we were going to win. And then I remember getting a text in the middle of the night, we won the Grammy. So, uh, yeah, it was kind of magical. People have always been fascinated by the Jewish-Irish connection or the perceived connection. You know, both cultures, through their music, express such heights of joy and such depths of sorrow. And both peoples have experienced such trauma uh, that has been handed down. Given that music is her livelihood, Susan has spent a lot of time thinking about musicians and the business of music, and is keenly aware of the disruptions in its business model in recent years. You know, music has changed a lot since then, and people don't realise, or probably want to hear, how much it's changed, but if I could put it very simply, Spotify was basically a restructuring of the music business that gave shares to the music labels, the, just the top music labels. So, you know, thousands of music labels just died. Most of my friends who worked in the music business are not working in the music business. It's very tough for young artists because I give a lot of support to a lot of young artists. And I believe there's never been a better time than now to, for artists to create their own careers. But yeah, it, it tanked. Luckily for me, I knew I could do other things. So I went to business school and uh, was able to start Kula Foundation. And I do other things. And the mental health rates have just gone off the charts. You know, the amount of difficulties for musicians because they just couldn't earn a living. And their living, you know, I would say, was taken from them. The model was shifted and the problem lay with governments not uh, crafting correct legislation that would give a fair share to artists. It's that simple. But asking governments to do that now, you know, it's really new models need to be created. And a lot of artists who have clout 
need to buy into those and move away from the wealth extractor models. Not for the first time the world has changed for Susan. So to use a word we've come to know and love this past year, she pivots. But she has done this so many times before, she takes it all in her stride. Trying to make change in life, the options you have are to do something different, and that is to be creative. And to be resilient for me means to be creative, to make a different choice. The problems she cares to address have been exacerbated by the pandemic. To create change, she has come up with her own unique model to combine culture and self-care. And to make it real, she set up the Kula Foundation. Today with Kula Foundation, we co-create new systems of community self-care through culture. Key to that is looking at what people would call mental ill health, mental and emotional distress, and linking the work in New York, where it's a great centre of innovation and of culture, a great place to do work, to a country like Ireland is very important because Ireland has the highest rate of suicide for young women and girls in Europe, the third highest rate of suicide for young men and boys in Europe. So we're looking at all non-clinical approaches to healing that. In my own personal life, in 2003, when I separated from my daughter's father and my marriage ended and we ultimately divorced, it was because he went through a period of huge depression and addiction for three years. And I became pregnant in the middle of that. And so I kind of took it on as a project. I was like, we're going we're gonna to fix this and I'm going to help fix this. And, and this is what I want for you. And what can I do? And, you know, how can I best help? And going for help and the word help with the systems that existed at the time, there wasn't a lot of help out there. And even today, I would say the help, it's there, it's much more present, but it's still very limited for people in crisis situations. And thankfully, it is changing. But also the educational systems and all those other systems we had lived in meant that there I was and my husband, and we were landed in this situation that no one had prepared us for. Nobody told you in school, by the way, you might end up finding yourself married to someone who has this huge crisis. And don't panic. (laughs) I'm just endlessly fascinated about my childhood and that experience. It must have been so isolating for people with those experiences in Ireland before. And it's, it's, yeah, it's better. But I really want to be part of really making it much, much better. I mean, that's what I want to do for the rest of my time. It links in with the work I've done with the artist Sean Scully, which has been a big part of our work with youth in in Shakur in Dublin. He came back to Ireland in 2019 and we put a plaque on the house where he lived for the first six months of his life. And we had a celebration for him in in Shakur and uh, we're planning other projects together, creative projects. But he's kind of been a patron for us and it's been a wonderful, expansive relationship so far because we'll do more work in that community. Rachen go gali go gali, vis yokan no wali se modlash. 
When I look back at it, all the influences I had, I seem to have taken these strands out of it that were gold for me. Is there crossover between her Kula creativity and her work as an artist? Well, I'm not doing it as part of what I do with Kula, but I find that when I do it, Kula always comes up, opportunities to talk about the work I'm doing with communities. But I have been writing really to commissions recently. So in 2018, Music Network Ireland selected me as their first musician in residence. And that was at the Dunleary Rathdown Lexicon Library. So as part of that, I wrote a series of songs and it was wide open to me kind of what to write it about, but I really wanted to base it in place. And I ended up writing about uh, the lives of women who had lived in Dunleary and Black Rock and the environs going back 200 years and women that were not famous at all. I really did it through research. That was a great success and, and lovely to do. And then Honor Malloy, the New York Irish playwright, heard some of those songs. She asked me to perform them at one of her productions here, so I did. And then she said, would you write more songs like that because I'm doing this other play, Round Room. So that was a beautiful commission. So I wrote a series of songs and performed them during the production in January 2020 as part of Origins First Irish Theatre Festival. So now that's a whole series of songs to do with Irish women. Now I am planning to record some of those later in the summer with the guitarist I work with in Ireland, Jer Kiley. I've gotten to know the guitarist Barry Reynolds. Now, Barry and I knew each other through Sinead. He was playing with Marianne Faithful and he worked with Grace Jones. I mean, some seminal recordings on the island label. But it wasn't until our mutual friend, the great Jimmy Chivago, passed. Uh, he had produced my first record. And a month later, we ended up having a tribute concert for him. And Barry and I played together for the first time. And then Barry and I became very close friends. And when COVID happened, it was very important for us to have that, you know, that way our, our connections with people changed and suddenly became very close with, with certain people just during that time. So we've decided to write a series of songs because Barry wrote that song Broken English with Marianne Faithful, which was a huge hit. So we are writing a song called Broken Irish. I've always looked to have an expansive view on things and to pick up the threads and not forget the little things that might be important to the story. And I always think of like my own spiritual beliefs and I respect all religious beliefs and none, but my own spiritual beliefs are that we are here in a universe that is always expanding. I mean, that's often the way I start my day, to think and to ask for my mind and my heart to be expanded. All your siblings, do they ever find themselves in the same room ever anymore? 
The last time we were all in the same room, I can see us all around my father's snooker table and it was the day after he had died. So that was December 2004. It was December 22nd. He died in December the 21st, 2004. That was the last time we were all in the same room. And everybody came back for the funeral, is it? Yeah. Stephen at that time had come back from Texas for a few years with his wife and sons so that their children could know their grandfather. And then Sean had come back to see dad because dad wasn't well, but it wasn't expected at that time that dad would die. So he happened to be there making a special visit to see dad. And then I got the call, as emigrants often do, on the Sunday. I got the call at three o'clock and at six I was on my way to JFK. But Ireland is home. I always knew the way a lot of New Yorkers talk about having a place upstate, uh, which is like this liminal thing sometimes until it becomes a real thing. I knew I could never do that. I mean, I've traveled all over the States. Like Manhattan is my home, but New Mexico was my favorite state. But I couldn't think of having a place there. I always knew that Ireland was my Vermont. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Centerpiece NY with Paul Finnegan, your presenter and producer. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. And if you can leave a review for us there, or a rating, we'd appreciate that. Sign up for updates and leave a message or a review for us at our new and improved website, centerpieceny.com. We'd love to hear from you. Our conversation with Susan McKeown took place in April 2021 in the library of the New York Irish Centre in Queens, exercising all social distancing and safety protocols, including face masks. For more information about Susan McKeown and the Kula Foundation, visit KulaFoundation.com. No singers or musicians were harmed in the making of this podcast. Music